Hi, listeners. If you love Undisclosed, I have two small favors to ask you. First of all, I am so excited to announce that Undisclosed has finally launched a Patreon page. Now, if you've ever wondered how you can support our work, this is finally one way you can do so. Of course, by listening to us, you support us, and we are so grateful for that. When you subscribe and give us five-star ratings, I'm so grateful for that. But to be honest, production costs money. When you drop two episodes a week, it takes resources. It doesn't just take our time. Uh, It costs money. We have folks to pay in order to produce these podcasts. And we have defendants and their families counting on us to continue doing this work. So you can become a patron of Undisclosed for as little as five bucks a month. All you got to do is go to patreon.com slash undisclosed pod and sign up there. Now, uh, along with feeling great about yourself because you are supporting the work of fighting for the wrongfully convicted, guess what? You also get a bonus episode. Every single month, Susan Collin and I will drop a bonus episode that's only for patrons in which we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to be discussing other cases from other true crime series that we find fascinating. Now, our very first episode in the Patreon feed is all about the case at the heart of the latest season of In the Dark. We're talking about the Curtis Flowers case, and we are talking about it the way we talk about all cases undisclosed, like three lawyers looking at the facts. So if you love Loved the In the Dark season two series, and you're fascinated with the Curtis Flowers case, which is ongoing, and you want to know what Susan Collin and I think about it, well, become a patron and check it out. And if there are other cases that you have heard about on different uh, true crime series that you would really love to hear Susan Collin and I uh, unpack, then definitely let us know. Tweet at us, post on our Facebook, send us an email, and we will definitely take a look. So, Check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash undisclosed pod. And the second favor I'd like to ask you is this. Please support our sponsors because they support us. Check out their great products and services using the unique undisclosed codes and URLs that we provide every week so that we can keep coming back to you week after week. Thanks so much for listening. And now here is this week's episode. If it's some time over the past decade, you happen to catch the episode of Unsolved Mysteries about the Swain case. More likely than not, in the episode you watched, you didn't see anything about any possible suspects in the case. Instead, you heard some interviews with law enforcement, watched Robert Stack fiddle around with the killer's glasses, and saw some reenactments of how the shooting went down. And then, at the very end, suddenly an image flashes on the screen and announces this case is now a solved mystery. A man named Dennis Perry is serving two life sentences for the murders at Rising Daughter Church. But that's not always how the episode went. Before 2003, when Dennis Perry was convicted, it was usually the original Slain Swain segment that aired on TV. And that original version of the show had a section on possible suspects in the case. Most of that discussion centered around one possible suspect in particular. For five months, the police searched for the killer using the composite drawing, but no new leads or clues surfaced. Finally, on July 5th, 1985, police, 135 miles away in Telfair County, Georgia, pulled over a car for a minor traffic violation. In the trunk, they found an automatic weapon and a submachine gun. Three suspects were taken into custody. One of them, Donnie Barringtine. We were given some information by some acquaintance of these people that Donnie Barringtine had told people in Florida that he had murdered a black preacher and his wife in a church. 
Hi, and welcome to Undisclosed. This is the ninth episode in the case of the state versus Dennis Perry. My name is Rabia Chaudhary. I'm an attorney and author of the book Adnan Story, and I'm here with my colleagues, Susan Simpson and Colin Miller. Hi, this is Susan Simpson. I'm an attorney in Washington, D.C., and I blog at The View from LL2. Hi, this is Colin Miller. I'm an associate dean and professor at the University of South Carolina School of Law, and I blog at Evidence Prof Blog. In the 33 years since the Swains were killed, there have been well over 100 people who were, at one time or another, identified as potential suspects in the case. And that's only including the potential suspects who were actually investigated to some degree. If you included all the names of all the people who've ever been called in by suspects, as anyone who's watched one of the TV shows about this case, your list would be hundreds of names longer still. But even at the possible suspects who were actually investigated to some degree, most of those individuals were never suspects in the strong sense of the word. More like persons of interest who were checked into and rolled out. And Camden County is not all that big, so it's probably not surprising that while I've been down there, I've sometimes run into people who were, at one point or another, named as suspects in the case. Like one time when I was down Woodbine, talking to a man about how I was down there to look at the Swain case, and when he handed me his business card, I recognized his name right away. And I'll say in advance, this is a, it's a very long list, but did you know that you were a suspect in the Swain murders? You got it. I am not. Your name is on the list. It's a very long list. <laughs> I never knew that. Yeah. Why in the hell would I be? I mean, I don't understand. Well, see, let me tell you something. Uh-huh. But back when the Smiths, you know, there were five generations, I mean, what was it? I don't know how many Three, yeah. Like 80 years, you know, and all. Where his daddy, uh, his daddy's daddy, put my daddy in prison one time for nothing. So over the years, yeah, there have been a lot of potential persons of interest in this case. But there have only ever been a few for whom there was really enough evidence against them that they became the subject of serious interest to investigators. And in this case, when it comes to possible suspects, there is one name that has always stood out from the rest. Donnie Barentine. Before the case was reopened in 1998, and Dennis Perry became the prime suspect, that designation had belonged to Donnie Barentine, and his status as a suspect didn't go away even after Dennis Perry was convicted. Even after Dennis Perry's conviction, some people continued to believe that Donnie Barentine might have really done this. And from time to time, the original episode of Unsolved Mysteries would still air, with his face on the screen and his name listed as the prime suspect in the case. Donnie Barentine was never charged with the murders of Harold and Thomas Swain, but the case has never really left him alone either. And for the past 33 years, he's had a lot of accusations that he was responsible for their deaths. Support for Undisclosed comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Now, Chances are you're confident when it comes to your work, your hobbies, and your life. But Rocket Mortgage gives you that same level of confidence when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. With Rocket Mortgage, you can apply simply and understand fully so you can mortgage confidently. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com undisclosed. 
Equal Housing Lender, licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org, number 3030. To Deputy Dale Bundy, the reason that the initial investigators had never been able to solve the Swain case, and the reason they had failed to ever correctly identify Dennis Perry as the culprit, was because they were blinded by their obsessive focus on Donnie Barentine. They got tunnel vision. For? For Donnie Barentine and that much, because of what Cottrell had said. That's exactly what happened. Joe Gregory from the GBI, bless his heart. He had gotten so convinced that Donnie Barentine did it that he couldn't he couldn't look anywhere but Donnie Barentine. Dale Bundy isn't right about this though. That's not what happened with the original investigation. From the thousands of pages we've gone through from the initial investigation, tunnel vision wasn't actually one of the investigators' sins. There was intense interest in Donnie Barentine, yes, but not to the exclusion of other suspects and other theories. And after the case against Barentine stalled out, they began looking for the next big break in the case. And he did accuse you and, and Joe Gregory of having tunnel vision, which... <laughs> Probably true. <laughs> but we didn't have anybody to tunnel. <laughs> if the original investigators had ever had a suspect that they could have pursued to the exclusion of all others, well, then sure, Bush Kennedy. They might have fallen into the trap of having tunnel vision. But that hadn't happened. There had never been a target that they'd been able to pursue for months on end. With every single suspect they investigated, they'd eventually hit a wall. There would come a point where they just couldn't push the investigation any further in that direction. And when they hit that point, when they felt like they'd run down everything they could, they moved on to new leads and new clues and new possibilities. It's not that they completely discarded old theories and old suspects, and from time to time they'd circle back to those old leads to revisit them with fresher eyes, but... At no point did they become so convinced of any one theory that they began to reject or disregard any evidence that could hint at an alternative solution to this puzzle. So Dale Bundy's belief that other investigators focused on Donnie Barentine to the exclusion of other suspects isn't accurate. But his perception that other investigators had tunnel vision on Donnie Barentine and that it impeded their ability to effectively investigate this case, well, that actually makes some sense. Because for the most part, the investigators that Bundy was dealing with in 1998 were not the original investigators. He spoke to Butch Kennedy and Joe Gregory about the case only a handful of occasions, and never at length. Instead, the investigators that Bundy was primarily dealing with were from the defense team. And when it came to the defense team, Dale Bundy's description of an investigation plagued by tunnel vision is a thousand percent correct. Because once the defense team learned about Donnie Barentine, he pretty much became the focus of the entire defense investigation. They decided Donnie Barentine was the man who had really done this crime, and they never looked back. So, at Dennis Perry's trial, the defense strategy can be summarized in four words. Donnie Barentine did it. Everything the defense did was focused on portraying Donnie Barentine and not Dennis Perry as a real killer. But it didn't work. The jury didn't buy it. They convicted Dennis Perry instead. Sometimes I think that maybe if Donnie Barentine had not been arrested that night in Telfair County, 
And if he'd never become a possible alternate suspect in this case, Dennis Perry might not be in prison today. Because if the defense hadn't had Donnie Barentine to blame, they'd have been forced to develop some other kind of defense strategy and to focus more on showing the jury about all the weaknesses in the state's case. And if the defense had done that, I think Dennis Perry would have had a much stronger chance of an acquittal. Hindsight, as always, is 2020, and it's easy to second-guess the defense strategy after the verdict has been returned. But in this case, it's clear the defense counsel's strategy of pointing the finger at Donnie Barentine did not work to Dennis's advantage at his trial. When Dell Bundy reopened the investigation to the Swain case in 1998, he pretty much immediately disregarded the case's previous prime suspect. That was old news. Dale Bundy seems to have believed, not unreasonably, that if Donnie Barentine had been involved in the Swain case, that would have already been established by now, with all the people who had been looking at it. And it'd be more effective to focus new investigative resources elsewhere, at new leads that may have been overlooked before. Accusations against Donnie Barentine were also nothing new. He was kind of a magnet for unsubstantiated murder accusation, but none of them had ever been shown to be true. And besides, it wasn't the kind of murder that Barentine would do. Oh, well, Donnie Barentine's a bad boy. Well, yeah, but... I'll tell you that. He was accused of blowing the head off of a... Uh, blowing the head off of a farmer with a shotgun in an orange grove in Florida and killing another person. Um, but, you know, Donnie Barentine told us point blank. He says, you know, I, I, they looked at me for doing this. He says, that's not my style. He says... To go in a church and shoot somebody with a small caliber handgun, he said, that's not my style. Dale Bundy was not the only investigator involved in the reopening investigation, though. And not everyone in the sheriff's department was so certain that disregarding Barentine was the right way forward in the case. In 1998, Mike Ellerson, then a deputy at the Camden County Sheriff's Office, had also been assigned to the Swain case to provide support to Bundy's investigation. And Ellerson did not recall Dale Bundy or the other officers in the case ever bringing Barentine's name up. As Mike Ellerson recalls it, at the time that he was assigned to the case, the only possible suspect that was discussed was Dennis Perry, and Dennis Perry alone. So here's where you first come in. Do you think Bundy was thinking of Perry before he went to talk to Cora, or was that when he first got? I think so. Why do you think that? Because that, it was, it was, because Barentine's name never came up. I mean, Perry was the only name that ever came up. So even before witnesses were talked to, you think Perry's name came up? I, I think so. Before me, you know. It's just so strange. I can't figure out why he even knew of... So his story is he went to talk to Cora Fisher and he had Perry kind of back of his mind. Mm-hmm. There's a million suspects in that file. Yeah. Why would you ever pick out Perry out of all of that? Mm-hmm. Perry's the only name I've ever been told or heard. I don't... And I had to read through stuff in order to come up with Barrington. It wasn't until Ellerson had read through the files in his own that he even learned about Donnie Barentine or about the fact that he'd been considered a suspect in the case. As far as Mike Ellerson remembers, Dale Bundy had never brought up the possibility that other suspects might exist. Dale Bundy was right, though, about the fact that Donnie Barentine had already been the focus of considerable investigative efforts, and not just from Camden County. Back in the mid-80s, Donnie Barentine had been investigated by a lot of law enforcement personnel from a lot of jurisdictions for a lot of crimes he'd supposedly committed, and all those investigations seemed to have concluded that Barentine's bark was worse than his bite. The only charges against him that ever stuck were a weapons possession charge he picked up after being arrested in Telford County, Georgia in 1985. And it was that same arrest that led to him becoming, for a time, the prime suspect in the Swain case. 
Late in the evening on July 5, 1985, in the city of McRae, Georgia, State Trooper Bobby Christian made a traffic stop and he pulled over a 1978 Toyota Corolla. The reason why he made the traffic stop isn't clear. The reason for it doesn't seem to have been recorded anywhere. But for whatever reason, he decided that it was suspicious and he pulled them over. There were three men in the car, all of them in their mid to late 20s. Two of them, Donnie Barentine and Jeffrey Cottrell, had been from the town of Mariana in the Florida Panhandle. And the third, David Robertson, the driver of the car, was from Georgia, in a town not too far from Brunswick. Trooper Christian frisked the men one by one, and then he made a search of the car. And when he did, lo and behold, he found a weapon. And not just any weapon. It was a rare, high-powered, and extremely expensive machine gun, capable of firing 1,200 rounds a minute. And it was equipped with a silencer. Later on, the police would also discover that, at the time of this traffic stop, one of the men had also been in possession of a 9mm, and to hide it, he tossed the gun under the Corolla, where it was later discovered. One of the three men, David Robertson, would tell the police that the 9mm belonged to him, and he claimed the gun was legally owned and registered in his name. But the machine gun, well, that was different. That was not a gun that any of the three men were legally authorized to possess. And so all three of them were arrested and taken to the Telfair County Jail to be booked on weapons charges. And four days later, the Telfair County authorities made a call down to Camden County. So what about Barentine? How did you find out about Barentine in the first place? McCraig. So they called you? How did they know to call you? It's pretty, it's not far, but it's not close either. It's not, but they, with the information that we had spread, Mm-hmm. And this guy had a machine gun in the car, and he was on his way to kill somebody. They thought it might be of interest to us. On July 10th, 1985, Butch Kennedy and another deputy named Hugh Jenkins headed up to Telford County. There, they interviewed all three men. Those interviews with Jeff Cottrell, David Robertson, and Donnie Barentine were recorded, and though the tape's been lost, we do still have the transcripts. And those transcripts show that, well, in these interviews, the investigators didn't learn very much. All three men gave roughly the same story. That David Robertson had just been driving around randomly, trying to get his mind off of some tragic events that he just had recently gone through, and he stopped at a convenience store and ran into Donnie Barentine and Jeff Cottrell. They'd gotten into Robertson's car, and they'd been riding around together when they were pulled over for some kind of traffic violation. And all three of them had just been shocked when Trooper Christian had pulled a machine gun out of the car. All three of them were floored. Can you just imagine it, they said. They were riding around with a machine gun all night and didn't even have a clue that it was there. One of the two other men must have brought it with him and failed to tell the others. So Butch Kennedy and Hugh Jenkins returned home to Camden County without any answers. But then, just a few days later, they got another call from Telford County. One of the three men they'd arrested had changed his mind. Telford County told them he wants to talk and he knows something about your double homicide case. Butch Kennedy and Joe Gregory went back up to Telford County again and on July 15, 1985 at 6.15 p.m., they interviewed Jeff Cottrell for a second time. And what he told them would change the direction of this case forever.
Lately, therapists around the country are reporting really high levels of stress and anxiety in patients, more than they've ever seen in their careers, in fact. And this could have something to do with our political climate, but I think it also has a lot to do with social media, the internet, just a lot of things happening in our lives, sometimes feeling overwhelmed, and of course, just getting through our daily stresses. So, If you ever feel stressed or anxious, the question you have to ask yourself is this, what are your coping tools? Do you have trouble sleeping? Do you have trouble relaxing? Have you ever tried meditation? Well, if these questions are raising red flags for you, we have an exciting announcement and that's this. We have started partnering with Calm, C-A-L-M, the number one app for sleep, meditation, and relaxation. It was even named Apple's 2017 app of the year. Calm gives you the tools that you need to live a happier, healthier, and a more mindful life. All you need is five minutes a day. Just five minutes of calm can change your entire day. And if you head to calm.com slash undisclosed, you'll get 25% off a Calm premium subscription. And that includes hundreds of hours of programs, including guided meditations on things like anxiety, stress, how to focus better, relationships. They even have a daily meditation, which is brand new every single day called a daily calm. And guess what? You have trouble sleeping? Well, they've got sleep stories. They're like bedtime stories for grown-ups, and they have so much more. Now, for a limited time, once again, Undisclosed listeners get 25% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com slash undisclosed. That will give you unlimited access to all of Calm's amazing content. Get started today, be more relaxed, more focused, and yes, more calm. Go to calm, C-A-L-M dot com slash undisclosed. Once again, that's calm.com slash undisclosed. This second interview with Jeff Kittrell was tape recorded too. But for this interview, there was no cassette tape and no transcript either. All we have to go off of is a three-page memo that Agent Gregory prepared afterwards. However, we do have one tape cassette of Jeff Kittrell telling the story. Many years later... After Dennis Perry had been charged with the murders, his defense team began investigating for themselves, and they began developing a defense that would try to portray Donnie Barentine as the real killer. And since the defense team had called Kittrell up and tried to interview him, Deputy Dale Bundy felt that he had to do the same. And so, in December of 2000, Dale Bundy and a GBI agent made the trip to Mariana and tracked down Jeff Kittrell at the Food World, where he'd been working as a grocery store clerk. I guess you know why we're here. Yes. All right. We, uh, we made an arrest last January on a fellow for the double homicide at the church up in our county. I know years ago you heard Donnie uh, talking about killing somebody on a no. similar case and all that stuff. Donnie Barrington's good talking Jeff Kittrell agreed to speak to the investigators about what he knew, and here's what he told them about the Swain case. What do you know about that shooting up in Georgia? Well, the only thing I know about the shooting in Georgia is the one that had motor and uh, wheelbarrow. Uh, I had uh, got off work, there were several friends, I don't remember who I was at the house that night, and uh, we sat around watching uh, uh, cable on our TV, and uh, Donnie come walking in the door. The doctor come walking in the door. Him and a blonde-headed guy come walking in the door. blonde-headed guy with glasses on. And uh, 
he uh, he said, uh, y'all been watching news? Y'all been watching news tonight? We're watching news. We're going to watch the movie. One day in 1985, Jeff Kitchell said, he'd been having a get-together at his place in Cottondale, Florida, which is not too far from Mariana. He'd just been hanging out with some friends, watching TV, when Donnie Barentine and some other guy had walked into Jeff Kittrell's house. Kittrell hadn't known the guy, but he was blonde and wore glasses. And then Donnie Barentine started asking if everyone at the house had been watching the news. And when they told him no... Barentine started bragging. And uh, he went bragging about it and said, well, I'm God. I'm God. I said, what are you talking about, Don? He said, well, you know, he said, uh, God put man on earth, God take man off this earth. He said, I put, uh, he said, I put man on this earth. He said, and, uh, I can take uh, man off this earth. He said, uh, you'll see it in the news, y'all see it in the news. He said, uh, the bear of Woodbine, he said, the bear of church, the bear of Woodbine. He said, it was the black church. He said that, uh, uh, he pointed at the other guy. He ain't never called that guy's name. Pointed him, he said, uh, we went up there to the church up there in Woodbine. According to Kittrell, Barentine had come into this party and started announcing, God put man on this earth and God takes man off this earth. And I put a man on this earth and I've taken a man off this earth. That makes me God. And then, Kittrell says, Barentine told him about how he and this blonde friend of his had gone up to a black church in Georgia. Kittrell didn't know the name of Barentine's buddy, the blonde man from Georgia with the glasses. But, Kittrell said, this man was real cold-blooded. And so far, the way that Kittrell's told the story here, at the Food World of Mariana in December of 2000, that's pretty much the same way he told the story to Joe Gregory and Butch Kennedy back in 1985, up in Telfair County after they'd been arrested. And according to the transcripts of one of the interviews that Cottrell had with Gregory and Kennedy, Cottrell told them, Barentine and his partner walked in there and hollered at the preacher, hey you, yeah, I want you. Said that the preacher come back that way. Said when the preacher got back there, he said then, I shot him down. That's what he said, I shot him down. That uh, he shot, he said that the preacher come back there and he shot him down. That his wife jumped up a screaming, hysterical-like, and come back there and he shot her down. And then organ players jumped up a screaming and he shot her. She felt like she'd been a hit, but come to find out, she had just fainted. In 2000, while talking to Bundy in that food world, Cottrell said something similar. And uh, he said that uh, they went into church and the preacher was up in the pulpit preaching. And uh, he says, and I shot him down in the pulpit. And uh, he says, and the preacher's wife, he says, she jumped up and went screaming. He says, and, and uh, whoever the other brother, he pointed over him, he said, he shot her down. And he says then uh, and then the organ player jumped up and went and screamed. He said she was a big old fat white woman. He said and I he said and I shot her, I thought I hit her. He said apparently I missed her, she just fight. That's obviously not how the Swains were killed. They were shot in the vestibule, not the pulpit. 
And Cottrell's claims that the couple in the black church have been shot up in the front of the church is one of the reasons that Dale Bundy told Cottrell that his story had to be wrong. I think what you heard that night, and I'm not calling you a liar, I'm trying to understand me. I think with Donnie shooting off his mouth about something he'd seen over the years. Because there's some things that you told us right here. Uh, Things just don't add up as far as what happened in that church. Because his account of what he told you is not what happened in the church. It wasn't just the details in Jeff Cottrell's story were wrong, Dale Bundy said. The way the Swains have been killed just didn't sound like the way Donnie Barentine would have done things. You know, that's going pretty well. I don't get Donnie Barentine off the hook for this one. This, the, the way this shooting was done is not Donnie Barentine's style. I mean, I know a lot of things. This was done sloppily. Uh, it was done with a lot of witnesses looking on. And, and I'm... And, and the kind of weapon that was going with, I don't think Donnie would have done it that way. I know he, uh... Because Donnie usually used a lot of guns when he did things. Well, he, uh, used the shot to have boats Yeah. In short, Dale Bundy said, the way the Swains had been killed had just been amateur hour, and Donnie Barentine was more skilled than that. Plus, using a little twenty-five caliber, like had been used to kill the Swains, that just wasn't his style. Let me tell you something. The days when I can pull an all-nighter or just function just fine not having gotten any sleep are long over. I need a good night's sleep. Otherwise, my days are shot. My productivity is shot. I am not a happy person. But here's the thing. Getting a great night's sleep is a lot easier and more affordable than you think. You don't need an expensive new mattress. You don't need sleeping pills. All you need to do is just change your sheets. Believe me, trust me, it worked for me. That's why you should check out Bowl and Branch. Everything Bowl and Branch makes from bedding and sheets is made from 100% organic cotton, which means they start out super soft and they get even softer over time. You buy them directly, so you're essentially paying wholesale prices and you're getting luxury sheets that cost up to a thousand bucks in the store, but Bowl and Branch sheets are only a couple of hundred dollars. Luxury sheets can cost up to $1,000 in the store, but Bowl and Branch sheets are only a couple of hundred bucks, and everybody who tries Bowl and Branch loves them. Again, including me. I have been using them for the better part of a year. That's why they have thousands of five-star reviews. Forbes, Wall Street Journal, Fast Company, all of them talk about Bowl and Branch, and even three U.S. presidents sleep on these sheets. And get this, shipping is free and you can try them for 30 nights. If you don't love them, send them back for a refund. There is literally no risk and no reason not to give them a try. They also make a great gift, by the way. I'm definitely going to get some this year for the holidays. Right now, our listeners get 50 bucks off your first set of sheets at BowlinBranch.com using the promo code UNDISCLOSED. Go to BowlinBranch.com today for $50 off your first set of sheets. That's Bowl, B-O-L-L, and Branch.com. Use the promo code UNDISCLOSED. BowlinBranch.com, promo code UNDISCLOSED. Back in 1985, though, the original investigators hadn't been willing to dismiss Jeff Cottrell's story on the grounds that Donnie Barentine would have done a much better job of it if he'd been the killer. Two days after getting the story from Jeff Cottrell about Donnie Barentine's confession, 
Butch Kennedy and Joe Gregory drove to Mariana, Florida, and began interviewing the other people who had been at this party with Donnie Barentine. And all of the people they spoke to confirmed that it had happened. The first person they spoke to was Jeff Cottrell's girlfriend, Sue Wilkes. She told the investigators, One night, about two and a half months ago or so, I think it was the first part of April, I remember Donnie Barentine came over to the house where Jeff and I were living. I'm pretty sure that Timmy Walker was there, too. Donnie was real drunk. He usually was. He had this 9mm and he was waving it around. He got to talking about being God. He said something about, God giveth and God taketh away, and with this I'm God because I can take it all away. And then he got to talking about killing a black preacher and his wife in a church. He said that the preacher was shot first, and then when the preacher's wife ran through the door, she was shot too. The investigators then went to speak to Timmy Walker and asked him about this party, and he told them, Well, he was talking about being God and all that. He was waving his gun around. Then he started talking about killing a black preacher and his wife. He said it was in a church over in Jacksonville. He said it was a drug hit because the man wouldn't pay for his drugs. He said that somebody went in while he waited outside and shot the preacher after they called him to the back. Then he said something about when the preacher's wife ran back and stuck her head in the door that she was shot too. With these witnesses from Mariana corroborating the story they'd heard from Jeff Cottrell when they interviewed him in Telfair County, the investigators went back to Georgia to conduct more interviews. This time, they wanted to speak with Donnie Barentine, see what he had to say about these witnesses who were claiming he confessed to committing the murders at Rising Daughter Baptist Church. Unfortunately, although there were numerous interviews of Donnie Barentine, we have records showing the contents of only a single interview. And that's the very first, very brief interview that Butch Kennedy had with Barentine up in Telfair County on July 10th. That was the day he interviewed all three men. And all three men, including Barentine, had told Kennedy they didn't know a thing about anything. It never gets into the substance of anything at all. But it's the only record of any interviews with Donnie Barentine that we have. All the rest are missing now. Though back in 1985, Kennedy is sure every interview he had with Barentine had been carefully documented. It Foster followed up with a document. It's very possible. We just have, I think we've lost Glenn, a lot of records. Glenn Thomas, in fact, Glenn Thomas was, had, had the interview with, or had the follow-up with, uh, that Foster had sent back or sent to us. How do we get Another those files? Story. I don't believe they threw them. Do you think they threw them away? Or do you think they're somewhere sitting around in Camden County? We just got to find it. And, Maybe they just can't find it. Without the written records of Barentine's interviews, all we're left with are the memories of law enforcement personnel who interviewed Donnie Barentine to try to reconstruct what he said to them or how Barentine explained all the witnesses who had come forward to tell the police he confessed to the murders at Rising Daughter. But in 1988, only a few years after those interviews took place, Agent Joe Gregory told Unsolved Mysteries about what he recalled about those interviews with Donnie Barentine. After several interviews with Donnie, he... Uh admitted that he had told these people in uh, Florida that he killed a black preacher and his wife. And then he just smiled and said that I was lying to him. We have never been able to come up with any hard evidence to connect Donnie with this case. That lack of hard evidence was not for a lack of trying, though. In late July of 1985, investigators arranged for Donnie Barentine to be put in a lineup. The lineup took place down in Jacksonville, Florida, because for some reason that's where Donnie Barentine had been moved to at the time. 
So Butch Kennedy and Joe Gregory chose two of the church ladies and took them down to Florida to view the lineup. Benzola Williams, who'd spoken to the killer out in the vestibule, and Gwen Owens, who had gotten a glimpse of the killer and had helped in preparing composite images of him. In the Unsolved Mysteries episode, there's a reenactment of what happened next. You'll be viewing five individuals. I'd like, if you will, to place yourself in your mind back at the church the night that this incident happened. Okay? Yes, sir. Five individuals on the other side won't be able to see or hear you. Lights. Donnie Barentine and five similar-looking inmates and officers from Jacksonville. We have a photo of the six of them all together, facing the camera, wearing mostly slacks and collared shirts, and it absolutely could be the album cover for some 80s one-hit wonder band. Donnie Barentine was number one in the lineup, furthest to the left. But if you didn't know who he was already, there's nothing about him that seems to make him stand out from the others in any way. Here's how Agent Gregory described it. We had a lineup, a live lineup, with Barentine and, well, some of them were actually police officers because we was trying to get them the same height and, you know, as close to age as we could and everything, make it a, an honest lineup. And she stood in uh, the viewing room. They couldn't see her. And she stood there for 15 or 20 minutes, just looking up and down, up and down. And then she got to staring, obviously, at Barentine, just there, and you know, and I'm sitting there just thinking, oh boy, oh boy, she's going to pick him out, she's going to pick him out. And finally, Butch asked her, Miss Williams, is there anybody there you recognize? And then Vanzola Williams made her choice. GBI agent Joe Gregory remembers that moment when Vanzola Williams pointed to one man in the lineup. And she points to Barentine and says, that's him. And boy, our hearts just dropped. And then she said, well, I'm, I'm not positive, but I think that's him. She said, but I am positive. Those are the same boots he had on in the church. Vanzola Williams was interviewed for the Unsolved Mysteries episode, and she described why she hadn't been fully confident that the man she'd selected out of the lineup had, in fact, been the man she'd encountered in the vestibule on the night that Harold and Thomas Swain were killed. There was about six men there, and I really couldn't say that one of them was him, you know, because the person I saw had short hair. His complexion was a little bit lighter, but he had the same boots that I saw that night. The boots was what I recognized, but I I wasn't really, really sure. The man she'd picked out had shorter hair, and he wasn't as tan. Hair can be cut and tans can fade, so it didn't mean this wasn't the same man, but it didn't mean she wasn't as confident in her identification of the man's face. But the boots, well, those she said she did recognize. That's how we got into the Barentine boots. These were custom-made boots. They were not a deal where, oh, I went to the store and bought a pair just like them, you know. So these were not the kind of boots anyone could just buy off a shelf. They were custom snakeskin boots. And as Vanzola Williams told the investigators... But I recognize his boots. They're the same boots he was wearing the night he killed the Swains. On August 17, 1985, Butch Kennedy and Joe Gregory drafted up a warrant for Donnie Barentine's arrest for the murder of Harold and Thelma Swain. A copy of that warrant is still in the case file today, but that's as far as the case against Barentine ever went. 
The district attorney for the Brunswick Judicial Circuit, Glenn Thomas, refused to sign off on it, and Donnie Barentine was never charged. Without an absolute identification from Benzola Williams and without any other physical evidence linking Donnie Barentine to the crime scene, it meant the bulk of the case against him consisted of statements from the Florida witnesses about Donnie's confession. And based on his assessment of those witnesses' credibility, D.A. Glenn Thomas did not want to bring that case. He said that he didn't want to give Joe a warrant because he didn't want to use uh, so many words, drug dealers and prostitutes is reliable. Which which DA was this? Glenn Thomas. Okay. So he didn't want to prosecute Barentine because he... He didn't want to take the, the word of a, a street whore or a prostitute and drug, drug dealers. Someone. It's credible. Butch Kennedy was too polite to repeat D.A. Glenn Thomas's actual words. But the reason Glenn Thomas told Kennedy and Gregory that he wasn't going to charge Barentine was that he wasn't going to use, quote, whores and crackheads in his courtroom. Agent Joe Gregory remembers that conversation as well. And when we went to the D.A. with it, he said, I'm not putting whores and drug drug addicts on my on the stand in my courtroom. Oh, God. Now, you know, we wasn't talking about a business exec here. We're talking about a guy that was a drug dealer himself. So he didn't hang out with what the DA called reputable witnesses. They usually don't. But he went, he went, he went, to, he went down there to Florida and bragged about doing this. But putting aside the inflammatory phrasing, if D.A. Glenn Thomas did not believe the witnesses against Donnie Barentine were credible, then, as a prosecutor, it was his right not to pursue the charges here. Of course, if Glenn Thomas refused to bring any case where the witnesses were people that he thought were morally questionable, that would be another matter. But assuming that Thomas truly did not believe that the potential witnesses in this case were credible, then declining to bring charges was the right call. And ultimately, the DA did not charge Johnny Barentine with anything at all, whether related to the Swain case or otherwise. But that doesn't mean he escaped scot-free from his arrest in Telford County. Possession of the machine gun that had been found in the car with them was not just a state-level offense. It was also a crime under federal law. And even though the DA declined to charge Donnie Barentine, the feds didn't. The murder charges against Donnie Barentine were not pursued but he was subsequently convicted on weapons charges and is currently serving five years in a federal penitentiary. After the case against Donnie Barentine had been shut down by the DA, the investigators moved on to other leads and other suspects, though from time to time, they'd still look back at Donnie Barentine again. Every few years, someone in the Cannon County Sheriff's Department would take the case out again and start poking around and start looking into the Barentine theory once more. They'd re-interview old witnesses and look into potential new witnesses and see if other jurisdiction had information now that might help them put the pieces together. None of it really went anywhere, though. That part of the investigation pretty much stalled out in 1985 when the DA declined to charge Don Barentine. And for 15 years, it never really progressed from there. And then, in January of 2000, Dennis Perry was arrested for the murders at Rising Daughter Church. 
and in preparation for his trial, his defense team began to conduct their own investigation. And they very quickly reached the conclusion that it was Donnie Barentine who had really killed the Swains. And for the next three years, Dennis's defense team would continue to investigate Barentine. They would also investigate nearly a half dozen other people that, for one reason or another, the defense team had come to believe might have been Barentine's accomplice. Because Jeff Kittrell had always claimed that Barentine hadn't done these murders alone. Barentine had had a buddy with him, Kittrell said. A blonde guy with wire-rimmed glasses who, according to Kittrell, was a real cold-blooded kind of guy. And over the course of their investigation, this buddy of Donnie Barentine's became the defense team's great white whale in this case. For years, they chased rumors of him through Florida and through Georgia, and a half dozen different times, they became convinced they'd finally found the right guy, only to decide upon further investigation that it was not the right man. And again and again, they went back to the prosecution with new claims about who this man might have been. And the prosecution's frustration with this endless parade of alternate suspects was kind of understandable. In the end, the defense never did come up with a final theory about who Barentine's buddy might have been. And in hindsight, it's hard not to wonder if this cold-blooded blonde man that Cottrell had spoken of was less of a great white whale and more of a giant red herring. Even though the defense never found any solid answers as a result of the defense's investigation to Donnie Barentine, the state was forced to reinvestigate into Barentine too. Because if the defense's case was going to be that Donnie Barentine did it, then the state's case would have to be that Donnie Barentine didn't do it. And that put the Camden County Sheriff's Department in an unusual position. As Dale Bundy told Jeff Cottrell in 2000, We're probably the first police in the world ever trying to prove that Donnie Barentine didn't do something. Plenty of investigators had come and gone before in an effort to prove Barentine was guilty of some crime or another. Now the Camden County Sheriff's Department was setting out to prove his innocence. So Dale Bundy and the GBI agents assisting him re-interviewed witnesses, tracked down Barentine's family, and finally in 2002 were able to find Donnie Barentine himself. And after some persuading, they managed to convince him to drive up to Camden County to talk to them about the case. The purpose of this um Bundy's interview with Barentine was short, just a half hour long. And in this interview, Bundy and the other two investigators in the room were definitely not employing the read technique. And, and you came here today to basically get yourself out of this. Yeah. That's the only reason Barentine had ever agreed to drive all the way from Mariana to Camden County to be interviewed in the first place. For nearly 20 years, he'd had to deal with these accusations against him, and he just wanted to find a way to finally be free of it all. Why'd you come here today? Well, uh, you just been having to settle. Okay, when you say get to settle, what do you mean? Well, ever year or two, it'll pop up. Uh, some damn cop gonna try to question my mom, well, where do you, you know, where, I, where do I live? I don't know what I gotta do. This interview with Donnie Barentine did not go into much detail about anything. 
much of it consisted just of Bundy having Barentine confirm that he couldn't remember ever confessing to the murders of Harold and Thelma Swain, but that if he had confessed, well, it wouldn't have actually meant anything. As you were told earlier, several people have come forth and made statements about being at a party in the Right? They said at the party, you came in drunk, waving a weapon around, a handgun of some kind, uh, claiming that you uh, you could play God, you could give life or take life away. And that you had, uh, you and a friend of yours, a badass friend of yours, I believe is how they put it, had gone to a church near Woodbine, Georgia, and killed a preacher and his wife. You remember making those statements? I don't remember, but if we would go that long ago, it's possible. Okay. Would you, is there a possibility you might have shot your mouth off about something that you really didn't do just to impress somebody while you were drinking? Yes. Possible. Okay. Yeah. Have you ever done anything like that before in your younger days? Uh, shot my mouth off. I'm sure I am. Okay. Uh, Later on, at Dennis Perry's trial, Donnie Barentine's testimony was pretty similar to what he's saying here. Barentine just didn't remember confessing to the murder of the Swains. But if he had confessed at a party back then, well, he'd been drunk and spouting off, that's all. Just trying to talk big. Whatever it was he'd said, he hadn't meant it. And, Prosecutor John Johnson argued, when Donnie Barentine had testified on the witness stand at Dennis Perry's trial, he'd had no reason to lie. If Barentine had committed the murders, well, he could have safely said so right then and there. And nothing would have happened to him for it. He had immunity. He had nothing to fear from telling the truth. The kind of immunity Donnie Barentine was given is called use and derivative use immunity. And the fact Barentine got that sort of immunity is not necessarily so unusual. Although it doesn't seem like the meaning of use and derivative use immunity was ever fully explained to either the jury or to Donnie Barentine, both of whom were left with the impression that he could never be prosecuted for the murder of the Swains, what it really meant was that nothing Donnie Barentine said could ever be used as evidence against him. But what was unusual about the grant of immunity given to Donnie Barentine was the language used on the immunity agreement itself. It said, Comes now the state of Georgia, by and through the district attorney for the Brunswick Judicial Circuit, and finding that said Donnie Barentine was a witness to the death of Harold and Thomas Wayne, was present at the scene, and has given statements to other persons about his involvement and his testimony to such as necessary to the public interest, hereby grants to Donnie Barentine use and derivative use immunity in the trial of the case of the state of Georgia versus Dennis Perry. No one has ever been able to explain why the grant of immunity that was given to Donnie was explicitly based on him having been present at, and a witness to, the murders of Harold and Thelma Swain. Because the state's whole theory of the case is that Dennis Perry did it, and Donnie Barentine had nothing to do with it at all. So it's unclear what reason there could be for Donnie Barentine to be given immunity on the basis of being a witness. In fact, not even the prosecutor who prepared the immunity agreement knows why. When the newspapers ask him why he granted Barentine immunity to come up there and testify what he testified, he didn't know. He said, but there must have been a good reason. He couldn't recall. And, and, and No, he couldn't recall. But the biggest problem with the defense's strategy of blaming Donnie Barentine had nothing to do with anything that the prosecution had done. The way I see it, by trying to claim the evidence showed Donnie Barentine was really the killer, all the defense accomplished was to endorse the prosecution's case against Dennis Perry. 
because the evidence against both Donnie Barentine and Dennis Perry overlaps in so many ways. And for both Perry and Barentine, the case for their guilt is based on statements from witnesses who claim to hear confessions and eyewitnesses who claim to recognize them from the crime scene. And many of the weaknesses in the state's case against Dennis Perry were the same as the weaknesses in the defense's case against Donnie Barentine. So if the defense was going to argue that the evidence they had against Donnie Barentine was sufficient to show his guilt, well, that must mean that the evidence the prosecution had was sufficient to show Dennis Perry's guilt as well. Take, for instance, the eyewitness identifications. Of all the witnesses at the church that night, Vanzilla Williams had had the best opportunity to view the killer from when she'd spoken to him in the vestibule. And Vanzilla Williams had identified both Donnie Barentine and Dennis Perry as the killer. And she'd had the same degree of confidence in making both identifications. For both Perry and Barentine, Vanzilla said, they'd look like the man in the vestibule, but she wasn't sure. At the pretrial hearing in Dennis Perry's case, Ms. Vanzola testified that after Jane Beaver had shown her the photo of a man that she thought was the killer and asked if Vanzola and Cora could identify him, Vanzola had said she'd never gotten to the police to tell them about the incident. On cross, Dennis's defense counsel questioned her about why this was. Could you tell me how come you didn't tell the police what the photo Ms. Beaver showed you? Because I wasn't sure. I didn't tell any... I didn't even tell my family about it. Because you weren't sure? Yes. You didn't want to point the finger at a man that you didn't think you were sure? I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure. And you can compare what Vanzola Williams said about her identification of Dennis Perry with what she said about her identification of Donnie Barentine. But I, I wasn't really, really sure. And there's another similarity here as well. Dennis Perry and Donnie Barentine were both identified as a result of suggestive identification procedures. Something I hadn't actually realized until Butch Kennedy pointed it out to me. In, a, in, our, in our lineup mm-hmm. in Jacksonville, we actually screwed that up. How so? We let him wear his boots. And she recognized the boots, so that kind of tainted it. I don't know that anyone's ever brought that to anyone's attention. So obviously he's wearing, yeah. So with the boots, she was like, that's it, that's it, that's it. But she did recognize the boots. She seemed very confident about the boots. Yeah, she did. But then can you, because the boots have fixated in her mind, is she actually identifying Barentine or is she identifying the boots? And she did, she did in her statement, those are the same kind of boots that person had on. Butch Kennedy is right, both about it being a screw-up and also about no one having brought it up before. This never came up at Dennis's trial or in any report I've ever seen, but by allowing Donnie Barentine to wear his own clothes in the lineup, the investigators had inadvertently opened up the possibility that it was the suspect's clothes that Vanzola Williams had identified, not the suspect himself. But he had the same boots that I saw that night. The boots was what I recognized. Thank you. 
The boots contributed to Vanzola Williams' identification of Donnie Barentine, and that's a problem. Because Donnie Barentine's boots look familiar to Vanzola Williams, it's possible that her recognition of the boots contributed to her tentative identification of Donnie Barentine as the man she'd seen in the vestibule. And if instead someone else had been in the lineup wearing those same boots, she would have been more inclined to pick that individual out instead of Donnie Barentine. Still, although both identification procedures were flawed, this isn't to say the identifications used for Barentine and Perry were equivalent in magnitude. The way that Dennis Perry was identified was about as prejudicial and suggestive as an identification procedure can possibly be. Indeed, it would have been unconstitutional if it hadn't been for the fact that a private individual, Jane Beaver, had done the initial flawed identification procedure before a law enforcement official repeated her prejudicial and suggestive process. The potential suggestiveness of the Barentine lineup was in comparison much smaller in magnitude, and likely wouldn't have precluded introduction of Vanzola Williams' identification had Donnie Barrington been charged. Still, it does mean there may be good reason to avoid putting too much weight in Vanzola Williams' identification of either Donnie Barrington or Dennis Perry. There's another similarity between Donnie Barrington and Dennis Perry as well. Both of them had the same alibi for the murders. They'd been at work, hundreds of miles away at the time the Swains were killed. For Dennis, his alibi was the concrete company he'd been working at in Jonesboro, Georgia. For Donnie, his alibi had been an assembly line where he'd made industrial washing machines over in Mariana, Florida. When Barentine was arrested in 2002, he told investigators he couldn't remember where he'd been on March 11th, 1985, but he knew he'd been at work that day. Do you recall where you were at? By any no. I mean, I know, I know that's a long shot. You know, yeah. saying we have to ask. I mean, that's, that's um, Were you working at that time? Uh, working place called Utilize. And Donnie Barentine had a time card to show it. According to Agent Joe Gregory, for both Dennis Perry and Donnie Barentine, after they'd been named as suspects in the case, he'd investigated by seeking out work records for both of them. Although this is where the alibi defenses for Donnie Barentine and Dennis Perry diverge, because the work records for Donnie Barentine still exist today while the work records for Dennis Perry had been lost. But according to Barentine's time card, he'd been at work at Unimac until 3.29 p.m. on the day the Swains were murdered. Now, if that had been 3.29 p.m. Eastern time, that would have left Donnie plenty of time to get to Rising Daughter. But it wasn't. Mariana is in the panhandle on Central Time, an hour behind, which would have made the drive from Mariana to Waverly a closer call. But not close enough to mean that he still couldn't have done it. One thing that DA tried to say, oh, it was impossible for the Bar- for Barentine to drive from his job because he was supposedly working that day, but we found out it was very common that people would walk out in the middle of the day and their buddies would log them out at the end of the day, you know, time clock them out. And his drive would have been easier than, <clears throat> than nobody Dennis Perry's would have been. Him. Nobody recalled seeing him. Of course, we're, we're talking quite a, you know, time had passed since we went went down there talking to these people but nobody recalls seeing him that day but coming back we proved that it was very easy to make it back from from uh, florida up from his town in florida to the church with time to spare but the da told the jury it was impossible yeah couldn't be done lied to him and he knew that Butch and I had driven that route and that you could do it. That's kind of what you gets me... Lie, lie yeah. to and there was one more fact that applied to both of them equally, the forensic evidence. 
because those glasses found in the vestibule did not belong to Dennis Perry, and they didn't belong to Donnie Barentine either. And the DNA obtained from the hairs stuck in those glasses excluded Dennis Perry from being a contributor, but they also excluded Donnie Barentine. The cases against Dennis Perry and Donnie Barentine are based on similar evidence, and they also have similar weaknesses. In fact, had it been Donnie Barentine that was charged in these murders instead of Dennis Perry, in some ways the cases wouldn't have looked all that different. And from the evidence I've seen, neither case is one that should have been prosecuted in the first place. So much in both is just left unanswered, or else left to be answered by unreliable witnesses. But even assuming, for the sake of argument, that one of these cases had to be prosecuted, and that the state had to proceed to trial on either one case or the other, well, what I still don't get is why they chose to make that case the one against Dennis Perry. What gets me, though, is that like, for the, from the prosecutor's perspective, it would have been so much easier to get Barentine. It would have been. Like, they it had to work been. a lot harder to get, to get Dennis Perry. Oh, my, my boss... Uh, my boss has even went with me to Florida, and and we talked to one of one of the guys down there who had found the Lord, and you know he was going to testify. Hey, they didn't want nothing to do with it. At Dennis Perry's trial, I think it's safe to say the defense did not succeed in proving that Donnie Barentine was the real killer in this case. Far from it. But still, when we were speaking to jurors about what they were called in this case and about how they'd evaluated the evidence they were presented, I'd been startled to hear just how overwhelmingly they'd rejected the defense's case. For most of the jurors, the evidence about Donnie Barentine had done nothing to persuade them of Dennis Perry's innocence. Some of the jurors seemed put off by the attempt to cast blame on someone else, while other jurors seemed to think that the desperation of raising that kind of defense tended to point at Dennis's own culpability. If anything, though, the defense's focus on Donnie Barentine had acted to increase the jury's confidence in his guilt, not undermine it. And at first, I was really struggling to understand why that was. Yes, there were real problems with the defense's theory that Donnie Barentine had done this, and yes, I too had questions about the credibility of some of the defense's witnesses. But at the same time, at least to me, as far as Dennis Perry's case was concerned, Donnie Barentine was reasonable doubt personified. You have two people accused of the same crime with extremely similar evidence against both. And at a minimum, the evidence against Donnie Barentine was as strong as any evidence there was against Dennis Perry. So, in a situation where there exists equivalent evidence against two different suspects, how could a jury possibly conclude that there was sufficient evidence against either one to show their guilt beyond a reasonable doubt? Even if the jury had found the evidence against Dennis Perry to be stronger or more credible than the evidence against Barentine, the existence of such similar evidence pointing at another suspect should have been enough on its own to still create a reasonable basis for believing that it could have been Barentine and not Perry who did this. That would be a reasonable doubt. That would be an acquittal. And yet, the jury had voted unanimously to convict. The jurors' interpretations of the Donnie Barentine evidence varied, but all of them seemed to agree that the story they had been told about Donnie Barentine and him being an alternate suspect, well, it just didn't make much sense. 
The fact that some random Yahoo from Florida had once gotten drunk at a party and said some ridiculous things, that just wasn't nearly enough to connect him to a murder in Georgia. And hearing the jurors' reactions to Donnie Barentine made me realize that the story I knew, that the evidence I was aware of from reading through all the case files and witness interviews, that had never actually made it into the trial at all. It wasn't in the transcripts. The story the jury had heard was much simpler and more contained and easily dismissed. And I started to see why the jury could have seen the evidence against Donnie Barentine as nothing more than drunken bravado by someone unconnected to Rising Daughter in any way. But there's nothing simple or contained about the investigation into the story told by Jeff Cottrell back in 1985. Because there are a hundred spiraling rabbit holes that this story runs down, and the jury never got a glimpse of any of them. Without some reason to connect Donnie Barentine to the Swains, the jury rejected the idea that he could have been involved in the murder. The story just didn't make any sense. Donnie Barentine had lived in Mariana, Florida, hours and hours away from Camden County. There was no reason for him to have been in Waverly in the first place. So even if he made some drunken confession, there was no real reason to credit it. Except, Donnie Barentine didn't live in Mariana in 1985. Not for all of it, at least. He moved to Waynesville, just over the county line into Brantley County, the next county north of Camden. And it's not far at all from Rising Daughter. Donnie's cousin Greg Barentine lived there in Brantley County, and so Donnie was there, along with his friend Jeff Cottrell, to go work for Greg. And working for Greg was apparently how Donnie Barentine, Jeff Cottrell, and David Robertson ended up getting arrested in Telford County. In 2000, in that interview with Bundy down at the Food World, Jeff Cottrell told Bundy about what had led them up to being in McRae that night. He said that he and Donnie had been hanging out at Greg's house when Greg had gotten a call from somebody. Cottrell wasn't really sure who. Greg had called up David Robertson, and Robertson drove over in his Corolla. And then Greg sent the three of them, Jeff, Donnie, and David, on their mission to Telford County. Uh, Greg had sent us to uh, some man's house anyway, and, uh, and Greg sent us over there to pick up the money. That's all I know. That's what he told me. We was going over there to pick up the money. And we went over there, and... Uh, and so I got out and walked to the door with Donnie, and Donnie was taking uh, that machine gun behind his back. It had the silence on it and all. And uh, he went out and knocked on the door, and some little kid came to the door. As far as I've been able to tell, just about every word of what Jeff Kittrell said here was actually true. In July of 1985, a 14-year-old boy had been staying home alone in his parents' house in Telfair County while his parents were out of town. And late one evening, someone had rung the doorbell. And standing there at the door had been a thin man with longish, dark brown hair, with another man not far away, him a bit shorter, and with longish, shaggy, light brown hair. And the first man, the one with darker hair, had asked to speak with the boy's father, telling him, we've got a relative that we need to put into a nursing home. Now, the boy's father ran a nursing home, so the question sort of made sense to him. But what didn't make sense was for someone to come by like that, that late at night, asking us on place at a home right then and there. But the boy told the man that he was home alone, and the men at the door had left. He asked him was his daddy there, and the boy said, no, he just left. And now he says, all right, we'll be back later. And turned around, went back to the car, and, uh, and uh, we left there. 
So Cottrell, Barentine, and Robertson left the house that they were sent to, but they didn't get far. Not long after, Trooper Bobby Christian pulled the car over, found the machine gun, and arrested them. As for why exactly the three men had gone to the house in McRae, well, that's still not clear. We've heard a lot of different conflicting explanations about what their plan was that night, and it's possible that not all of them ever knew the plan in the first place. Years later, David Robertson would say that he assumed that Cottrell and Barentine had gone to the house to rob the man or kill him or something, but he never knew who the man was or exactly why they'd gone there. He was just following orders from Donnie's cousin, Greg. And Jeff Cottrell also said that he didn't really know why they were there that night. Greg Barentine had told him to do it, so off he went. And McRae wasn't the only destination that they had in mind, Jeff Cottrell told Agent Gregory and Deputy Kennedy. Greg had told them to go further north still, to the city of Macon. They had a hit that they were supposed to do there. Greg told them to go to a man's house, cut all the phone wires, but make sure to fold all the wires back so they couldn't touch. Then they were supposed to go to the man's door, ask him where his cocaine stash was, and kill him. As Agent Gregory noted, somewhat dryly, in his memo summarizing the interview with Jeff Cottrell, It should be noted that the manner in which Cottrell was instructed to cut the telephone lines is very similar to the manner in which they were cut at Rising Daughter Baptist Church. And it wasn't just this MO that seemed to link Rising Daughter to the Barentines. According to Jeff Cottrell, from what Donnie Barentine had told him about it, the reason the Swains had been killed wasn't much different than the reason that, in July of 85, Barentine and Cottrell and Robertson had been sent off to McCray and Macon. He said, uh, the preacher's son out out for some uh, cocaine, you know, kilo, two kilos of uh, cocaine. And he says, uh, he's hiding now, we can't find him. He says, so uh, people sent us trial, the jury never heard any of this evidence that could potentially link Donnie Barentine to the Swains. And if they had, maybe that would have led to a different outcome with their verdict. Then again, if the defense had tried to introduce more evidence about Barentine and his potential ties to what happened at Rising Daughter, well, it's possible that would have just backfired against the defense as well. Because this story about the drug debt and the phone wires, it's all coming from Jeff Kittrell. And Kittrell's stories, well, they tend to have a lot of problems. For instance, Harold Swain didn't have any son-in-laws, so we can be sure at least that a son-in-law with a drug debt is not the reason the Swains were killed. But sometimes, what Jeff Kitchell said, even the stuff that sounded kind of crazy, would turn out to be true. Which means it's possible the answers we're looking for here to find out what happened to the Swains aren't in Camden County at all, but one county north in Brantley County. listening to Undisclosed, The State versus Dennis Perry. We'll be back on Thursday with an addendum episode, so send us your questions with the hashtag UDAddendum. Methel Telhan is our executive producer. 
Our logo was designed by Baluki, and our theme music is by Ramiro Marquez and Patrick Cortez. Audio production is by Rebecca Lavoie of Partners in Crime Media, and the host of the Crime Writers All On podcast. You can find case-related materials, timelines of key events, and witness charts on our website at undisclosed-podcast.com. Transcripts of this episode and past episodes are available on our website and are prepared by our transcribing team, Reda Bliss, Erica Fladell, Don Logos, and Skylar Park. And thanks so much to our sponsors for making it possible for us to come back week after week. Don't forget to follow us online. On all our social media accounts, our handle is at UndisclosedPod. That's Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And if any of our listeners out there have information on Dennis Perry's case that they'd like to share, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach us at UndisclosedPodcast at gmail.com. That's all for this week, and thanks so much for listening.